The Spring Symphony is Benjamin Britten's first really large-scale choral and orchestral work. He composed it in 1949, with the recent experience of composing the operas Peter Grimes, Rape of Lucretia and Albert Herring under his belt. Perhaps with that in mind, he felt it was time to tackle something big, not for the stage. This is a symphony, as the title suggests, but of a rather unusual kind. All Benjamin Britten's symphonies represent unusual takes on the traditional model. It's a choral symphony, but it's laid out a bit more like a gigantic song cycle, much more so, in fact, than any of Mahler's hybrid choral song symphonies. There are four parts here, but in all except the finale, they are broken down into separate, if interconnected, movements. Twelve in total. That's twice as many as in Mahler's enormous third symphony, or Das Lied von der Erde. Now, Britain owed a lot to Mahler, but the sound world at the beginning of the Spring Symphony is worlds away from Mahler. Now, given the unusual structure of the Spring Symphony, there was a lot of debate at the time it appeared about whether it was really a symphony. Well, this sort of thing is OK up to a point, but ultimately it's a bit of a distraction from what the work's really about and how the message is conveyed. What is that message? Well, essentially, as Britain said, it's about the progress of winter to spring and the reawakening of the earth and life which that means. The music of the Spring Symphony and its general tone certainly seem a long way away from Stravinsky's famous Rite of Spring, symbolised by the sounds of breaking ice on rivers like cannon fire. Yet there is a connection between Britain and Stravinsky through the notion of rite, or religious ritual. The first movement of Britain's Spring Symphony is in fact a prayer. It's a setting of an anonymous 16th century invocation to the sun. Shine out, fair sun, with all your heat. Show all your thousand-coloured light. We heard those words as set at the opening of Britain's Spring Symphony a moment or two ago. It's such a long way away from thousand-coloured light. We have cold, harsh choral harmonies and the sounds of the frozen earth on timpani, low harps and hard percussion with icicles on xylophone and vibraphone.
As so often, we can marvel here at Britain's choice of words. There are so many bone-chilling, finger-numbing images, and at the climax, the eerie dawn chorus on the woodwind, and later, the grey wolf howls he does so bite. Britain really relishes the word howls. unusually dark beginning, perhaps, to a work with spring in the title. You might think so. But then, if one takes spring as an extension of one of Britain's favourite images, that of innocence, how often in Britain's work we sense that that innocence is under threat? Here, we get that sense of what it is that threatens life, desolation, cold, darkness, death, the grey wolf howling. And it all underlines the contrast with the second movement rather well too. A herald announces spring, literally with a flurry of trumpet fanfares. The words come from Edmund Spencer. The merry cuckoo, messenger of spring, his trumpet shrill hath thrice already sounded. Britain seizes on that image of the trumpet shrill, sounded thrice. His three trumpets turn that cuckoo call into a fanfare. There's still a harsh tone here. The transition from winter isn't immediate. That magical moment when we first catch the scent of spring in the air, that comes in the next movement. It's a setting of famous verses by Thomas Nash. Spring, the sweet spring, is the year's pleasant king. There's a sudden access of warmth and sweetness in the harmonies, in the orchestral colours, and in the soaring soprano solo with her direct evocation of birdsong. This mixture of naive pictorialism and sophisticated harmonies and scoring is so typical of Britain. It's also typical of Mahler, and yet here it's so personal that you can't call it in any way derivative. Complexities in this image of spring triumphing over winter persist through this part of the Spring Symphony. Part two begins with Robert Herrick's Welcome Maids of Honour. 
Now, perhaps you might say, we have female imagery to balance boys, yet Herrick, too, was an artist with a highly complicated erotic nature. His poetry is full of references to the female body and lovemaking, yet he himself remained a lifelong bachelor. The women he idealises in his poetry are thought today to be largely or wholly fictional. In Britain's setting, we have that idealised flowing grace in the woodwind and harp sounds, yet also perhaps with a touch of distance. And underneath, there's that sense of shifting unease in the string figures that follow. The unease intensifies in the next movement, Waters Above. Henry Vaughan's poem welcomes the showers and dew that give nourishment to the earth, yet Britain sets it with an eerie accompaniment on violins alone. It's marked sul ponticello tremolo, that's a kind of fluttering sound, with the bow held right next to the bridge, giving a kind of eerie, glassy rustling. It's an anxious and far from nourished sound. come to the heart of the Spring Symphony, the dark heart as it seems. This is Britain's last setting of poetry by his friend W.H. Auden. Britain and Auden were very close, but then suddenly the relationship ended. Auden became one of those ex-friends that Britain referred to rather disturbingly as his corpses. Auden's mistake, it seems, was to challenge Benjamin Britten directly on a point of sexuality. Why all this distant, apparently chaste worship of, quotes, thin-as-a-board juveniles, i.e. the sexless and the innocent? That may be one reason for the profound sense of discomfort behind the Auden setting out on the lawn I lie in bed. Apart from the finale, this is the most substantial movement in the Spring Symphony in terms of length and scope, and in terms of the emotional content, it eclipses even the finale. It begins with seemingly paradisical imagery, the Eden-like notion of an English country garden at night. But how subtly Britain conveys the sense of the worm in the bud, the corrupting influence. The chorus's R's are almost serene, apart from a little harmonic twist at the end.
alto flute and bass clarinet alone intertwining. Exactly the same sounds as in that deeply uncomfortable scene in Britain's opera Turn of the Screw, where the governess confronts the boy Miles in his bedroom. But the idea of threatened or corrupted innocence in this movement from the Spring Symphony soon takes on a wider significance. There's a kind of willed ignorance built into the conventional image of the English country house garden idyll. For me, it's caught a trifle unpleasantly in Rupert Brooke's poem Grantchester, the one with the famous lines at the end, stands the church clock at ten to three and is there honey still for tea. Not quite so famous or oft-quoted is Rupert Brooke's earlier disgusted comment about temperamentful German Jews that he longs to flee from to his cultivated English rural paradise. Auden, however, writing in the late 1930s, was well aware of what the Rupert Brooks of this world are turning their face from, and by implication what was about to happen to those temperamentful German Jews. His complacent English house guests speak the truth for a moment in spite of themselves. And gentle do not care to know where Poland draws her eastern bow, what violence is done, nor ask what doubtful act allows our freedom in this English house, our picnics in the sun. Britain's music confronts this head-on, and the contrasts with Auden's ironic gentle is almost painful. the end of Out on the Lawn I Lie in Bed, an uneasy, ambiguous piece is restored. You could imagine a hand deftly drawing the curtain closed in that willfully, perhaps criminally innocent English country house. Britain's Spring Symphony, as I said, was written in 1949. The end of World War II was just four years earlier. Most English people, it seems, and including most English artists, were determined to put all this behind them, as so often after a terrible war. Britain, however, was a striking exception. The Spring Symphony is on one level an intense prayer for and celebration of the return to life, spring after the winter of World War II. Yet Britain is a complex, multi-levelled artist, a master of ambiguity and ambivalence. Out on the lawn upsets any notion of a simple return to life, love and happiness. Hence, perhaps, the determination, almost desperation, in the next movement. When will my May come that I may embrace thee? When will be the hour of my soul's joying? Tearing strings set this movement in motion, and when the tenor solo repeats the opening plea, here, surely, we can hear a note of anguish. When will my May come? When will my May come that I 
The excitement mounts during the next two short linked movements and then spills over into the finale. It's mostly a setting of verses by the English dramatists Francis Beaumont and John Fletcher. A celebration of London. We have a big swinging waltz-like tune enhanced by percussion, reminiscent perhaps of the frozen sounds at the symphony's beginning, yet also now full of the creakings and groanings of city street life. Carriages, storeholders setting up their pitches, animals driven through the streets. You can even hear the call of the cow horn. The boys soon return with more joyous whoops and cries. Then, at the climax, they proclaim that spring has run its course. The next season is due to the words and tune of a well-known anonymous 13th century song, Summer is a coming in. Here then is a big, generous, rich textured celebration of life in its fullness. It draws all the forces in this big work together. The final words are from the tenor solo, which to prolong God save our king and send his country peace and root out treason from the land and so, my friends, I cease. Order is restored, treasonable ambiguity is banished and a single Fort Sander orchestral chord brings the curtain down like a guillotine. Is this then a happy ending? It's always a good idea to be guarded about happy endings in Benjamin Britten. And here you may well find yourself asking, is this good enough, comprehensive enough an answer to that disturbing vision contained in Out on the Lawn I Lie in Bed? Well, life does go on. Spring keeps returning, however deep and dark the winter. And here we have the composer's vision of his native country poised for the determinedly forward-looking festival of Britain and the dawning of what many were to call the new Elizabethan age. It might have been more overwhelmingly convincing if Britain hadn't also, however, painted that deeply subversive picture of English insularity and complacent, willful ignorance, certainly the wrong kind of innocence in Out on the Lawn. Even through the celebratory uproar of the finale, you may find that that note still lingers. Stephen Johnson there with his thoughts on the work we're about to hear, Britain's Spring Symphony. Discovering Music was produced here in Cardiff by Michael Serkin.